Hi and welcome to the Demand Matrix podcast series Sunny Side Up. I'm Paroma. I'll be your host for the day. Hi Vinay, welcome to the Demand Matrix podcast Sunny Side Up. We're super happy to have you here today. How are you? I'm great, Paroma. And you? I'm doing great. Thank you. And thank you for participating today. You know, Vinay, it would be great if you can tell the audience a little bit about you and, you know, feel free to talk about your favorite racing cars, your favorite game, which I believe is squash. And, uh, you know, they'd love to know about your first venture, Convio, and of course, the idea behind uh, your current entity, Trust Radius. Okay. I'm a, a serial entrepreneur in that I've started and successfully run two companies. I'm also a father of two children aged 10 and 9 and uh, they are my biggest passion in life and you know I view kind of raising those children to be the biggest accomplishment of my life outside of parenting and being an entrepreneur as you alluded to I do have a few kind of passions I'm a, an avid squash player when I get the time I also have had the opportunity to kind of race my car here on the racing circuit the formula 1 racing circuit here in Austin don't get to do it so often but it's always a, a thrill when i have that opportunity that's amazing when i that's so interesting <laughs> so how did the idea behind trust radius come about as i was building my last company convio so just to give you a little bit of background on that company first and then how it led to this company so convio was a vertical market focused saas business focused on the not for profit sector we help charities use the internet for communications marketing fundraising and public policy work we grew the company to about 100 million dollars in revenue over a period of a decade or so took it public and were ultimately acquired by a larger competitor in our space a lot of lessons in building that company that apply to how i've thought about trust radius but the epiphany for trust radius came when we were actually procuring technology to run our own business where in one particular case we bought an expensive piece of hr technology rolled it out to 450 employees and then realized it wasn't the right fit for our company it was a fine piece of software but it just wasn't the right fit for our own unique use case and we had used analyst reports from the likes of Gartner we'd spoken to references we had spoken to the salesperson but we ultimately hadn't done sufficient diligence to understand how well the product would work in our particular kind of company use case and that mm-hmm. struck me as a, a major issue as an expensive investment it had a lot of human capital involved in rolling and training it out to all these people and it was a big mistake as i started to kind of peel back how we had made other technology purchases at a company i saw a recurring theme of the degree of buyer's remorse in almost every case where the common theme was i wish i knew then what i know now this product is more mm-hmm. expensive to maintain than expected this product doesn't work quite as expected in some cases we ended up switching products a few times and it just felt like it was highly inefficient and there was a better way to enable technology Around the time that I was going through all of this, I bought a present for my wife, a cappuccino machine, went into a store, didn't quite trust the advice that I was getting from the salesperson, and uh, decided to ask a friend for advice. He recommended a particular product out of Switzerland. I went online to research it, discovered a site called coffeegeeks.com that had just incredible reviews of these high-end cappuccino coffee machines. and um 1000 word reviews that described in intimate detail what it's like to own them and maintain them clean them etc and i thought why doesn't anything like this exist 
for software and for hardware, mm-hmm. because you know three mm-hmm. trillion dollars is spent each year on enterprise technology purchasing. And the advice that we get as buyers at that point was super high level, or maybe not that trustworthy. And so it just seemed like an obvious need, and, and that there was an obvious parallel in terms of what was happening in the consumer world. Now the question I then asked myself is. Is this problem unique to us, or do other people experience it? So I went to speak to a lot of leaders and CIOs in the tech community here in Austin, Texas, and heard a recurring theme that people would really love to have a better way to get candid advice from their peers, but that advice would need to be robust, trustworthy, and reliable. So that's what launched me in in starting Trust Radius. Sounds like a fantastic sort story. So, what were some of your challenges initially while building the product and the solution? We've approached building this company quite differently to my first company. With my first company, I raised venture capital straight away, and we kind of grew pretty aggressively in terms of headcount and also capital. We raised about $40 million before our IPO. This time around, I bootstrapped for the first year and uh, raised capital more methodically along the way and grew headcount much more slowly. And the rationale behind that was that I believe business is usually a marathon, not a sprint, that it actually takes you a while to solve different problems. And sometimes trying to solve too many problems in parallel versus sequentially leads to inordinate amounts of inefficiency, not just in terms of capital spend and dilution to you as an entrepreneur and your shareholders, but also in terms of creating inefficiencies in a business that you long run then end up papering over as opposed to laying the appropriate foundations from day one. So we've approached the business very, very methodically, really trying to solve problems in a relatively serial way. The first problem that we needed to solve was, can we convince total strangers to write something of value to their peers? And that's a very non-trivial problem. There's a lot of junk out there in terms of comments on boards and things that are very superficial when it comes to product commentary. I would argue that most product review sites are relatively shallow in terms of the content that they provide to their buyers. And actually providing something robust and genuinely useful to inform a highly considered purchase is a very non-trivial problem. So we spent really a year or two doing nothing but figuring out how to answer that problem. And and I think it really paid dividends because today in our industry, we have the highest quality content of any site in our industry by an order of magnitude. The average review on our site is four to 500 words. The average person spends 22 minutes writing their initial review and then often comes back to add to it. And that's created an enormous differentiation in terms of the usefulness and the insights in the content in our reviews. So that was the first problem we had to solve. The second problem that we had to solve was once we have a mechanism to drive this content, and clearly, you know, can we do it at scale? Does that content actually get read by anyone? Can we drive influence? And we weren't about to spend gobs of money on paid media to drive inbound traffic, we had to do it cheaply and organically and rely on search engine optimization. So understanding how to optimize our content and our site in order to drive inbound traffic through search was really, really important. Today, we have about a half a million monthly users on our site, and they're an incredibly attractive audience who have extremely high purchase intent. 
They're coming in either to understand which products to put on their shortlist or how to narrow their shortlist to their preferred list of vendors to bake off competitors and to make final selections and do justification to others in their company using data from our site. So we're used across the buyer's journey, but in that sort of high intent phase of purchasing, and we're used by many of the largest companies in the world, uh, about 42% of our audience are companies above 1,000 employees, and the largest companies in the world do use us as part of their information gathering process. And many of them tell us that we're more useful than traditional analysts in informing their opinion. So again, driving content was the first challenge and doing so with quality and at scale. The second challenge was driving influence and an audience. And then the third question was then, how do you monetize in a way that does not betray trust and does not become pay to play? The majority of the sites in the review space are pay-per-lead or pay-per-click type of models. And the challenge with that approach, if not done extremely carefully, is that it's easy to introduce bias where you promote the vendors that are paying you and you funnel, quote-unquote, the leads to, to people who are paying you versus where the buyer ultimately wants to get directed. So we had to spend time engineering a solution that did not have that sort of pay-for-play side to it and actually always put the buyer first. And one of the things that we've also done as part of that strategy is not carry ads because we've learned from our buyers that their trust is materially dissipated when you have ads on a site because it conveys potential bias again in terms of if you advertise you know a competitor's brand on on another company's kind of page it can Absolutely. it can create a perception that you know what what are the real motives of this site so you have to have a commercially viable and interesting and scalable model we did raise venture capital we have to drive a return i am interested in, in making money for me and my team but we wanted to do it in a way that would not betray the trust of buyers and that's again a very non-trivial problem but my viewpoint was these are all very challenging problems to try and solve all three in parallel wasn't smart we had to sort of take a more serialized approach at solving them so given all of this and given your journey and your learnings how do you feel the SaaS marketplace will evolve in the coming years well, the SaaS marketplace is proliferating. Uh, Mark Andreessen talks about how software is eating the world. And that is very true. A lot of solutions that used to be hardware only are being software enabled and the hardware is becoming commoditized. Obviously, a lot of our consumer devices now are getting software in them, whether that's cars or appliances we have in our home. In medical, The medical industry is getting radically changed by the introduction of robotics and software as well. So software will become pervasive, number one. Number two, uh, the idea of owning software and having to do installs is certainly getting eradicated as well. Everything's moving to the cloud. Everything's moving to subscription. Everything is moving to continuous updates and recurring models. It's not only a superior delivery mechanism, but it's a superior way of holding your vendors accountable where you're not locked in just because you've bought into a stack or an infrastructure that you you have less lock-in as a, as a buyer. So there's no, there's no doubt that um, SaaS is proliferating for all of those reasons. Um, but with that also comes a few other buying trends, that IT purchasing is being democratized and decentralized 
By democratized, I mean, yes, a CIO goes to a conference and, and comes back with good ideas, but the people who do the legwork to research the products, vet them, buy them, implement them are in the trenches. And those people are much less swayed by what traditional analysts have to say and much more swayed by what their peers have to say. So fundamentally, the democratization of IT purchasing is driving the relevance of a platform like mine in terms of being much more influential in the marketing in the buyer's journey. The other big trend around decentralization is that already for the last decade, less and less software is bought by IT and more is bought by business functions like marketing, finance, HR, etc. And those individuals have not grown up, again, trusting traditional industry analysts. They have more stock in what their peers have to say, which again, reinforces our value proposition of being a trusted source of information for them. The third factor that's really changing this whole landscape is just the generational effect. 39% of enterprise tech decisions are now made by millennials who've grown up with Yelp or Zomato in India and social media and Google, where they don't just wait to trust what a vendor has to say to them or take their advice from an analyst who's never actually used a product. They want that first-hand insight from their peers and they start with Google or they start with finding a network that they trust for advice. So all of these demographic trends coupled with the fact that SaaS is sort of a revolution in terms of how software gets delivered means that people are craving transparency and authenticity in terms of how they buy products and the marketplace is becoming the you know a much more level playing field where brands now have to compete on their customer experience and again we believe that the brands who deliver the best value to their customers then do the best job of communicating that value through getting their customers to help tell their story are the ones that will ultimately gain more market share Absolutely. So, you know, you said it yourself, you know, that today's buyers are basically the business functions, marketing teams, sales teams, finance teams, even, you know, HR technology is booming in a big way. They are making decisions and investing in their own software to enable their efforts. So when it comes to marketing and sales teams are now spoiled for choice because there is no dearth of technology. There are no dearth in terms of features and in terms of the kind of things that they can do just by choosing the right MarTech, the MarTech stack or the right sales tech stack. So what, according to you, should teams look for when they are looking at product reviews for the first time or when they're defining their stacks? And can you talk about some of the key factors teams should keep in mind when they're making a decision at the end of the day? Yeah, so we do extensive amounts of buyer research. We do an annual survey of a thousand B2B tech buyers to understand what are the factors that influence decisions and how are they actually buying And when it comes to customer reviews, the number one reason actually people come to read customer reviews is to understand the whole truth. They can go to a brand's website, a vendor's website to understand the positives all day. But what they're really looking for in a review site is the other side of the coin. You know, they'll they'll read positives, but they want to understand what the cons are. And if they cannot find cons on a product, they don't trust that they have the whole truth and the whole picture. So that actually protracts and elongates the purchasing cycle. A lot of vendors are fearful of having negative reviews or having cons out there, but it's a key element of what actually invokes trust with a buyer because they want to understand, again, they're entering a relationship with their eyes wide open. 
you can liken it to marriage in the dating phase. You know, everyone's on their best behavior and you only see the positive side. You know, once people get yeah, married, true colors, <laughs> true colors come the out. True colors then come out. Yeah. And, and people <laughs> want to enter a business relationship like a relationship with understanding what they're getting, the whole person, the whole truth, the whole product, et cetera. And that's critically important. And again, what we've seen scientifically reported by our buyers if, is, is if they cannot find that whole picture, they will not make a decision or they will elongate a decision. Or if one vendor gives them content that gives them more trust and the other one doesn't, then they will go with a vendor that they trust more. No longer are people voting purely on the basis of brand. You know, you know, I'm going to buy IBM because it's the big brand that I know and trust. People are keenly interested to understand kind of the whole picture. The other thing is that they want to hear from people just like them. That's why personalization matters a great deal. If I'm in financial services, I want to hear from other fin services. Or more narrowly, I want to hear from people. If I'm at a trading company, I want to hear from trading. If, I, if I'm an investment bank, I want to hear from investment bank people. If I'm in New York versus Germany, I want to hear from people local to my country because there may be country considerations. If I've got a certain technology stack, I probably want to hear from people who've got a similar technology stack from me. So what I believe, again, the core reasons people come to a site like mine are to, again, understand the whole picture, not just the marketing side of things, but what's good and bad. And then secondly, to hear from people just like them. Therefore, as a vendor trying to adapt to the modern buyer, it's critical to be present in the primary venues that people go to. And there's a short list of two to three venues now that are sort of the primary venues, depending on who your target market is. We're one of those two to three venues. But in addition to that, it's critical to make sure that you are adequately represented such that if a buyer comes in who's of a given size in a given country and in a given industry, they can find people like them through that platform. That's what's going to engender trust. So what kind of technologies or tools do you foresee your growth in demand for in the next couple of years, especially for marketing sales teams? We've seen a tremendous growth across the board in MarTech as a category on our site, just as measured by traffic and so forth. I think there are certain categories like customer data platforms that are gaining a lot of interest right now. There are categories like account-based marketing that have a lot of buzz around them, but still I think people are not clear in terms of what tools they actually need and how to actually implement and use them. But I would say MarTech as a category as a whole is booming. You see that in the proliferation of products. Um, and the key issue is not a lack of availability of tools, but, but more often understanding where to place your bets and how to actually drive successful strategies with those tools. Absolutely. So I think the next question would be, what are the core marketing and sales strategies that you are seeing that are being driven by this specific demand for these technologies today? Well, I mean, I'm biased, but I believe a customer-centered strategy is critical. And it starts by being a customer forward company, making sure that you're driving customer input into everything that you do, that you have a very serious focus on gathering authentic customer insights. Sometimes traditional NPS surveys are insufficient. You only hear from the people at the extremes, people who love you and people who have real problems. And sometimes the folks in the middle who like you, but maybe aren't as vocal, have the best 
insights to share with you. And so having a more systematic way to gather customer feedback, I think is critical. Obviously focusing Mm -hmm. on realizing customer success is critical and then figuring out how to amplify the voice of your customer, not just in public reputation channels like mine, but in your own channels, because most brands do not wait for customers to just do their own diligence and come find them. They're doing proactive demand generation. They're doing proactive selling. So the most successful companies I'm seeing are getting very serious, not just about listening to their customers and acting upon that feedback, but by having a go-to-market strategy that puts the customer first. The CMO of Salesforce.com recently talked about, you know, she made a bold statement that campaigns are dead and it's all about the customer and putting kind of customer marketing first. I would go a step further to say it isn't about producing glossy videos and high production case studies because that's still marketing. It's about being authentic. The buyers uh, these days, particularly as buying has been decentralized, democratized, and their younger buyers coming into the mix, people in the millennial generation, they have a very low tolerance for what feels like marketing, and they want truth. Mm -hmm. They want straight talk. They want authenticity, yeah. Correct. And so I think the brands that will win are the ones that put, again, the authentic customer voice front and center. Absolutely. So are you seeing a lot of attention for account-based marketing, account-based selling? And if yes, what kind of data metrics and especially insights or tools do you see companies rely on to form the basis or performance of their campaigns? There's an enormous amount of buzz around ABM, ABS. Almost everyone I talk to is doing it in some form. I would say the sophistication around how they're doing it is still extremely low today. Now, the tools that they are using are intent data. Clearly, people want to understand who's actively in market and and whether someone in their desired target market of their named account list is actively in the market, either on their site or in other third-party venues. So intent data is important. Certainly, ad tech tools like a terminus that allow people to proactively advertise to a focal list instead of, you know, advertising to the world, concentrating your ad spend that's important too. Account-based selling tools, so whether that's an outreach or a sales loft that enable human beings, BDRs, to kind of drive more velocity in terms of their outreach context cycles are important. Mm -hmm. Also, I believe customer voice plays a role too. We work with a company called Social Solutions, which is actually a company owned by Vista Equity Partners and is in the nonprofit sector. They have had tremendous success doing account-based marketing to specific types of nonprofits. So in the nonprofit sector here in the US, there are multiple verticals and then there are multiple types of charity, brands of charity, where there are lots of distributed entities like the Red Cross or Catholic Charities or the YMCA. What they have had a great deal of success doing is that they stand up dedicated landing pages for each of those micro segments, like um, Mm -hmm. Catholic Charities or YMCAs. They include dynamic customer proof from Trust Radius on those pages, but from that same type of account, from YMCAs. And then they use Terminus to do focused paid media spend to direct people to those pages. So some of the tests Mm -hmm. they've done have had 150 times ROI by having the combination of a very focused advertising 
coupled with a very focused conversion page that puts customer proof, relevant customer proof front and center. So that I thought was a particularly compelling strategy around account-based marketing, but that coupled with using intent data and, you know, outreach tools altogether make a great deal of sense. Great, Vinay. That was very interesting insight. And I'm sure that strategy is going to sound very interesting to a lot of marketing and sales teams out there listening. So thank you. We really appreciate you taking out the time and uh, having this wonderful conversation with us today. Are there any other key takeaways or few words of advice you'd like to share with the audience, even if it comes comes to work-life balance, parenting tips, anything? (laughs) We're open to it. I haven't figured out work-life balance yet, so <laughs> I don't feel worthy of sharing <laughs> Qualified advice. Qualified to area. talk about it. My closing comment would be it's really all about the customer. Again, buyers have grown accustomed to a certain style of transparency and accountability in the consumer world just because of what's been happening in the last decade there in terms of the degree of transparency, the degree of access to information, And this isn't coming. It has arrived as a phenomena in B2B. And when you couple all of the trends around SaaS, decentralization, democratization, et cetera, you have to embrace a customer forward strategy in your marketing. You have to embrace authenticity. You have to think about how you put the customer at the front and center of all of your go-to-marketing. And it isn't just, again, about managing your reputation on a site like Trust Radius. That's important. It's also about how you take content that is authentic and trustworthy and inject it into your own sales and marketing channels to increase conversion and to increase trust. Whether you're doing ABM or whether you're doing broad demand generation, putting the customer at the front and center of how you communicate is the future and companies need to get on board with doing that today. That sounds very interesting and awesome, Vinay. Thank you so much for your time today. You're most welcome.